40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And lo and behold, the foreign and wicked people hear God's words spoken by the prophet Jonah, and they actually repented. And that's supposed to be surprising. This wicked and evil city actually repents. And all of this happens, from the running, to the sailing, to the fish, to the spitting, to the repenting, in three short chapters. And we still have one whole chapter left, which brings us to where we are this morning. Jonah had just preached to Nineveh, and the people had just in sackcloth and in ashes, the whole nine yards. And God had relented from bringing his judgment to the city. And this is the moment where we pick up this fascinating tale. It's in the immediate aftermath of Nineveh's repentance and God's mercy on them. So please open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. If you're looking in the chair Bible, that'll be page 1, or sorry, 775 in the chair Bible. Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding abounding from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Dear Heavenly Father, we just, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that your word about this prophet some 2,700 years ago is still living and active today, Lord. That this word, by your spirit, that you inspire this word, and by your spirit, you open our hearts to hear from your word this morning, Lord. Just thank you that in your grace, You give us the scriptures, Lord. And I just pray right now that your spirit would work in our hearts, work in our minds, Lord, that you would use my my feeble words to to communicate your truth, your gospel, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so if things weren't strange enough before, you know, what with the big fish and all? Here in this passage, the story takes another left turn. Jonah who'd already been called, rebelled, ran, sailed, sank, was eaten and spit up, had finally preached to Nineveh. But when the people of Nineveh heard and repented, and God saw and relented, that kind of rhymes, doesn't it? We're going to go with it. So when the people repented and God relented, Jonah lost it. Again, this is not what we should be expecting. Standing in the midst of God's miraculous work in Nineveh, he grew more and more upset with what he saw going on around him. Literally translated, verse 1 says, It was evil to Jonah, a great calamity. But more than being upset with what he saw going on around him, Jonah was angry. He was angry at God himself. In verse 2, when he prays, Jonah Jonah is actually quoting from Exodus 34. Using God's own words in defiance of him from uh, verse 6 in Exodus 34, where the Lord said, identifying himself to Moses, where the Lord said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Quite literally here, Jonah is saying, God, I knew this about you. This is why I didn't want to come here in the first place. I just knew that you were like this. I just knew that you would do this to me. Then in verse 3, capping off his prayer, Jonah asked the Lord, Lord, if it's not too much trouble, would you just take my life? Because 
I'd rather be dead than live with what's going on here, what you're doing here. So what's going on? What is going on here? Why wasn't Jonah totally psyched that these violent people, these literal heathens, were repenting of their evil ways? Why wasn't he praying prayers of thanksgiving, singing songs of praise, setting up, I don't know, setting up a new 501c3, you know, to fund his long-term mission to Nineveh, signing his book deal with Crossway about how to reach the unreachable city? What's going on? Well, fortunately, we have verse 4, because the Lord comes and he asks this question for us, saying to his prophet, do you do well to be angry? In essence, God shows up in the middle of Jonah's pity party and says, hey, hey, Jonah, why are you so angry? What is going on in your heart that has you so worked up, so enraged that you'd rather die than live? Is it really good for you to feel this way? Now, there are a lot of themes that we've kind of talked through as we've gone through the book of Jonah. A lot of different themes that are addressed in this short book. The mercy and compassion of God, repentance, forgiveness, God's mission to the world. But this question in verse 4 haunts the entirety of the story. From chapter 1, when Jonah took off to Tarshish, all the way through the end of the book, this question looms. Why? Why was Jonah so upset by what God called him to do? Why was his heart so troubled, was so opposed to God's heart in all this? I think to answer this question, we had to take a few minutes to consider, just to consider the nature of the human heart. Some have said that the heart is like a compass, always being drawn towards its magnetic north. But rather than a compass, which is bound by the laws of physics, maybe the heart would be better compared to a moth, which navigates by, with a, by a light outside of itself such as the sun by day or the moon by night. But a moth is easily distracted by other lights, other flames, easily misled by them. Likewise, the heart is meant to find its leading and direction, its meaning and purpose in something or someone outside of itself, but is easily distracted, easily led astray. Many centuries ago, St. Augustine addressed this moth-like nature of our heart in his confessions when he wrote, Thou, O Lord, hast made us for thyself, and the heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in thee. God created us for himself, and even though his sin, or sorry, not his sin, whoa, sorry, that would be heresy. (laughs) God has made us for himself, and even though sin has broken our relationship with him, our hearts still need something, something they can hold on to, something they can set themselves upon, they can't operate independently. So like moths to a flame, our hearts affix themselves to lesser gods in hopes of finding meaning, in hopes of finding some direction for our lives. For the heart is the navigator of the soul. This is why Jesus, in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This means that how we look at and interact with the world is almost entirely shaped by what our hearts value most, by what we treasure. Let me say that again this morning. How we look at and interact with the world is almost entirely shaped by what our hearts value most, 
See, we inevitably begin to reflect whatever and whoever that is. So on any given day or any given season of our life, the chief question before all of us is what or who do we value most? Our response to this question, not just the answer we give, but the answer we give ourselves to daily, weekly, will dictate how our lives take shape and who we're becoming. You guys with me? A little side there. Throughout the course of this book, it's been made clear that Jonah's heart was not in this mission. Am I right? I mean, he's run from it. He sailed from it. He tried to swim from it. Hasn't worked yet. But here in chapter 4, we come to Jonah's moment of truth, where the prophet gives voice to what has been raging inside him all this time. It was fear. But it wasn't fear of what would happen to him in Nineveh, like I used to learn in my Sunday school class. And it wasn't fear of failing in his mission or of looking foolish. And it certainly wasn't fear of death, because he was willing to die in the sea a couple chapters earlier. No, the fear that Jonah wrestled with was a fear that he might succeed. The fear that God might show mercy and compassion on the people of Nineveh, Israel's enemies. It was fear that God did not have his and his people's best interests at heart. Fear stemmed from one truth hidden inside the prophet's heart. And that's that Jonah's ultimate allegiance was not to the Lord, but to his nation. And God's value to him was directly linked to how God served his and his people's interests. Jonah's actions throughout the course of this book have been driven by his devotion, not to God or to his kingdom, but to his nation and to himself. Or to put it another way, Jonah's heart was drawn towards another, lesser flame, another God, an idol which he ultimately served. Now, the word idol is not a word we throw around a whole lot today, unless, you know, it's like American Idol. Kelly Clarkson, anyone? No? Okay. That show came back, right? It's on the air again now? Okay, you're still awake. Excellent. But most, when we think of idol, I think it's usually shaped by TV, movies, whatever. For me personally, it's the opening scenes of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indiana Jones is running through the, the jungles trying to find a little golden head, right? You guys with me? Indiana Jones. All right, come on. All right. So I like idol. Okay, a little golden thing, a little wooden thing, maybe big thing, who knows. However, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller wrote this about an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Sounds a little bit like Jonah, right? So yeah, an idol can be represented by a little statue. Or it can be a person, or a goal, or an idea, or a dream. Or yeah, in Jonah's case, even a nation. Simply put, an idol is anything, often a good thing, other than God that we base our identity on. We base our ultimate trust in, that we value as our highest good. And whatever or whoever this idol is will affect us and will shape us accordingly, like we see with Jonah. So that means if we value comfort as the highest good, then we may often see the world around us as an adversary that brings us discomfort, and we'll seek to live accordingly. If we value 
family. Family is a good thing. If we value family, though, as the highest good, we may begin to see the world around us as something from which we have to protect and shelter those in our care from, to live accordingly. If we value tradition or progress, we value money or power, if we value religion or ministry, the highest good, then we will seek to live our lives accordingly. So why was Jonah so angry? Because his idol was his nation, and his identity is a Hebrew among Hebrews, and he valued his nation and its flourishing as the highest good, and he saw what God was doing in Nineveh, his mercy towards them as a direct threat to what he valued most, and Jonah reacted accordingly. And the irony here is that Jonah looked down at the Ninevites as idolaters. He'd looked down earlier at the sailors as idolaters. He even prayed in chapter 2, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah saw their idolatry so clearly, but he couldn't see his own. And this is what idolatry does. It blinds us to what's true and what's good. It, it twists our vision of God and it poisons our hearts towards others. Just look at me again at our passage. In verse 1, Jonah looked around at literally thousands, tens of thousands of pagans weeping and fasting and throwing themselves upon the mercy of God, of his God. And all he saw was great evil and great calamity where he would have done well to burst out singing Psalm 117, which says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Instead, his love and his devotion to his nation, a nation that was itself very sinful and about to fall under John's, God's judgment, instead that devotion blinded Jonah to the goodness of what God was doing around him and in these people. In verse 2, his anger, in his anger, he saw as... Wait, I'm sorry, excuse me. In verse 2, in his anger, what he saw for what he saw as evil, it actually led him to lash out at God, lamenting God's character, his grace, his mercy, his patience and love, bemoaning the very traits that he had hoped in just two chapters earlier when he was in the belly of the fish. This idolatry of Jonah's had so twisted Jonah's vision of God that he believed that those traits were for him and his, but not for others. In verse 3 of our passage, where Jonah seemingly despairs of life, but in reality what he's saying is, God, it's either them or me. Either you get rid of them or get rid of me. Because there ain't world, there ain't, what am I saying here? What's that old saying? World for the two of us? Am I still on? Okay. So he's like, it's either them or me. Take them out of here, God. It's either these people or my people. What are you going to do? We can see here when love of country or nation surpasses our love of God and our love for people, the sure sign that patriotism, a good thing, has turned to idolatry. Jonah's heart had been so poisoned by the idol of his nation that he saw their existence and the existence of the Ninevites as a zero-sum equation. And so, as the Ninevites repented, he couldn't enter in. He couldn't rejoice with them or over them. He was much like the elder brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. 
who stayed outside when the younger brother came home, who, who would not enter into the father's joy because he couldn't look at the younger brother with anything but contempt. He couldn't look at the younger brother with anything but loathing because of what he represented. So Jonah could not bring himself to rejoice over the Ninevites. Now here's the thing. Like we said earlier, Jonah's an incredible story. It's a deeply layered piece of literature. And yet it's one that when we read today can seem, well, ancient. It can feel unrelatable. It can feel distant. There was something about a fish, cities I've never heard of, and I'm pretty sure don't exist anymore. But the truth is, Jonah is not all that different from you and I. Yes, he's been dead for 2,700 years. And sure, he had what I can only imagine is the unique experience of being swallowed and subsequently thrown up by a fish. Does anyone have that here? Swallowed and spit up by anything? OK. Um, but aside from those things, his fears and his struggles, the restlessness of his heart, and those things, Jonah is a lot like us. In fact, his story was written down to act as a mirror in which we can see ourselves, to see that we share his tendency towards idols, towards exchanging the greatness and the goodness of God for something less. As a great English author, professor, writer, everything, I guess author and writer are the same thing, apologist C.S. Lewis once wrote in his book Mere Christianity, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Have you ever had a season of your life where you were so consumed with the pursuit of a goal, with the pursuit of some end, that you began to shape, to form your whole life, your whole identity around this thing? Maybe it was a romantic interest. We've all, maybe, most of us, not all of us, but a lot of us have been there, right? It was that one person who you couldn't get out of your mind. That one person who, who drove you to do crazy things, you know, where everything else started to fade away except for that one person. You didn't want to see other people. You didn't want to talk to other people. It was just that one person. And you prayed. You prayed, God, if this person would just like me, I'll do whatever you ask, God. Right? Whatever happened? Only to be rejected, find yourself watching Legends of the Fall over and over again, <laughs> listening to country music. That's not you? Must be someone else. Um, or maybe it's politics. Maybe it was, maybe it is politics. Maybe there's that candidate that you can't stand, that platform that's so upset, like that you just wish that those opponents would just, well, you know. Maybe it was career. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's country, theology, ministry. So many different things. We all, like Jonah, have a tendency towards idle distraction, towards giving our hearts to lesser pursuits as if these pursuits were ultimate, as if they would bring us happiness and joy. It's interesting, in the Jewish tradition, the book of Jonah is read in its entirety every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And at the end of the reading, the congregation stands together and they say, we are Jonah. As if to place themselves in the midst of the story, 
to stand together in awareness of how much they share in common with this old prophet. And there's truth there, right? We are Jonah in more ways than we'd like to admit. We are Jonah. However, the beautiful thing is God does not leave things there. We saw in verse 4, God comes to Jonah again, not with a word for Nineveh as he had two times before, but with a question for Jonah, with the question that has driven our time this morning. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And this question here is a powerful reminder of God's grace at work in Jonah's life. He could have just left him there, could have left him sitting, between vas- or sitting there vacillating between rage and despair, between anger and take my life, O oh Lord. But instead, in his grace, he comes to him. Just hear that again this morning, New City. God, in his grace, in his love, comes to Jonah. I love that. I love that God never leaves his children in their messes. Even Jonah, who just two verses earlier spit in anger regarding God's grace and mercy, his steadfast love and faithfulness, even in that, God does not relent from demonstrating these towards him. The Lord comes to him in the midst of his idol-induced breakdown, I believe we'll call it here, and extends grace to him, asking him this question as if to wake him, as if to shake him, from his despondent slumber. But here's the thing, though. In a few more verses, the book of Jonah is going to end. This incredible story ends without resolution. If someone ever did make it into a movie, it would probably be Christopher Nolan. And it would end with Jonah spinning a top (laughs) and fade to black. We won't know what happened, because we don't know what happened or what becomes of this idolatrous prophet. But fortunately, Jonah's in a bigger book which I love. And eight centuries later in that book, we encounter another man, very much like Jonah, who found himself in a similar situation. He too was upset with what God was doing around him. He too was angry, furious over what he saw as a threat to his people, to his nation, to his religion. And he too would set off for a foreign city, hoping to see justice and judgment served to others. And like Jonah, he too would be confronted by God with a piercing question. So please open your Bibles with me. We're going to look together in Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Read a little bit about this person. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he went on his way, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone round him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You can almost hear the echo of God's question to Jonah here. Saul, Saul, do you do well to be angry? Why are you persecuting me? But where the book of Jonah leaves us with a question, the account of Saul continues. And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise now and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
But just like God in his grace came to Jonah, Jonah, excuse me, Jesus in his grace came to Saul and with a question cut Saul to the heart. And this man, this Pharisee, whose life had been given in service to his religion, in service to his nation, was transformed and given a new identity, a new purpose, a new mission. And this is how God's grace works. Where idolatry blinds us to what is true and what is good, God's grace comes in and opens our eyes to the goodness of God, to the truth of what God is doing. Where idolatry twists our vision of God and makes him into something he is not, grace gives us a supernatural vision of God that is more beautiful, more powerful than any idol can offer us. Where idolatry poisons our hearts towards others, God's grace floods our hearts with love for God and love for others, just as he loves them. Saul, who had been so sure of his righteousness, of his own accomplishments, of his own abilities and his own lineage, who had trusted so completely, so completely in the idol of his own worth as a Pharisee, as a Hebrew among Hebrews, would from this moment forward be wholly given over to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom's purposes. Just listen to what Paul writes of himself later in life, what he writes of this turn of heart, this shift in allegiance. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 and following. If anyone else, Paul says, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This could be Jonah saying these things. Different language. There were no Pharisees back in Jonah's day, but Paul was confident in who he was. His identity came from who he belonged to. He goes on to say, whatever gain you had, counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Lost for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish is British for garbage, by the way count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which is kind of where, kind of Paul's idol before, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We saw in Acts chapter 9. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, all that stuff I used to cling to, all the stuff that I used to think made me, all those things that I look to for my identity, for, my, for the highest good, I leave those behind and I, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You guys still with me? The grace of God encountered Paul on that road to Damascus and his life was radically changed. His trust in anything but Christ was undone. Excuse my voice is going. 
the grace of God, that's how it works. It comes in and it opens our eyes to the futility of our idols. And it opens our eyes to our desperate need for a Savior. The grace of God gives us vision, gives us a vision of Christ that is greater than all our idols can offer. Paul's describing here. And the grace of God, through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, births in us hearts that love God and love others. Be they brother or sister, neighbor, or even enemy. As Jonah's learning. And I believe that he, I believe that Jonah, upon being encountered by this grace and mercy, again and again and again, I believe that he saw his life radically changed. The story doesn't tell it, but someone had to tell this story, right? I think that's probably why Jonah passed it on, because he eventually learned. But at the end of the day, the story really isn't about him and his struggles, as much as the book of Jonah is about God and his grace. His relentless grace is never content to leave his children where they are, but business come and be changed. And just as Jonah came again and again to his servant Jonah, he comes again and again to us. In fact, he never leaves us. But time and time again, he brings us face to face with those things in our lives, those things in our hearts that we place above and before Christ. And he beckons us onward to die to ourselves and to our idols and to live unto Christ. As the author of Hebrews put it in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's the good news for us this morning, is that Jonah lived on the other side of this. We now know Christ has come. We know that the race, the work is done. The race has been run. Although we are still on the journey, our God and King, Christ Jesus, has made a way for us. He's laid his life, laid down his life that we may have forgiveness of sin and freedom from the idols that seek to ensnare us. He rose again that we might have assurance of life and he's given us his spirit that we might follow him and be changed. Now this morning, as we do every week and each week here at New City, we come to the Lord's table. It's an opportunity for us to fix our eyes on Christ, to encounter anew God's grace and his mercy for our lives. Here we're reminded again of the length to which God went to rescue us from our idols and to redeem us from our sins. And as we do this, together this morning as we celebrate the finished work of Christ, I do want to invite us to take a few minutes just to take stock of our hearts. Where are we harboring any idols, any counterfeit gods, any areas where maybe we've exchanged the greatness and goodness of God for something less? Are there things in our lives, things in our hearts aside from God that we say we cannot live without? Or maybe we don't say it, but we know it. Or are there ideas, maybe causes, maybe people that move us to anger and to despair and not to worship and prayer? That would be a sign there might be an idol lurking there. Is there anything I value more in this world than Jesus Christ? 
Let's invite God's Spirit to search our hearts this morning, to root out anything there that has taken precedence over our God and Savior. And then let us come. Let us come to the table and rejoice in the grace of our God and Father. Rejoice that the work is finished, that His Spirit is among us, that He works in us daily and weekly to root out these things, that we're not left alone, sitting on a hillside outside Nineveh, angry. But God comes to us again and again. The broken bread reminds us of Christ's body, which was broken for us. And the cup reminds us of Christ's blood, which was poured out for our sins. Taken together, they remind us that what he has done cannot be undone. The grace that he has poured out in our lives will not leave us, and nor will it leave us unchanged. And even though we still live in a world that is full of idols, a world that groans under the futility of sin, under the shadow of death, under the oppression of the devil, we have a Savior who is greater than any idol. We have a Savior that's overcome sin by his shed blood, who has defeated the grave through his resurrection, and who has laid low the schemes of the enemy through his perfect obedience to the Father and his love for his people. And if you're like me this morning, this week, this year, this century, this is a message you need to hear again and again. May the grace of God give us eyes to see what is true and good. May the grace of God give us vision to see God as he is and not as we have made him. And may the grace of God give us hearts that abound with love. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, then please come celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. The way we celebrate the supper is we form two lines here in the front, the middle aisle here, and we break off the bread and dip it in the cup. There's also some gluten-free bread here in the middle on the, the fish-shaped plate. It's available for anyone who needs that. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, then I'd ask you or encourage you to refrain from participating in the Lord's Supper. But at the same time, if you look in that little flyer, that little worship guide that you got when you came in, the City Life, there are prayers in there. I'd encourage you to read them over. If you don't know this God who sent Jonah... You don't know this God who encountered Paul. You don't know this God who laid down his life on a cross that we might know him. I encourage you, read through those prayers. We have a saying here at New City, we encourage you this morning to doubt your own doubts. If you have any doubts about that, open your heart and ask the Lord to encounter you. Let's pray.